Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast. And today I am going to do something a little bit different. Okay, so. I don't know about you, but my kids are headed back to school. So in the spirit of that, I thought it might be nice for us to get back to basics as well. So for the next few weeks, I'm going to be releasing at least one podcast that involves the basics of personal finance, uh, in addition to whatever else may be on the docket. Okay. Now, this week's back to school episode is about asset protection. And you probably know when I talk about asset protection, I usually involve uh, Doug Lodmel, who's my asset protection attorney. So make sure to tune into this show. And over the next few weeks, like I said, what's going to happen is that there'll be either one or two shows. There are, you know, shows that are sort of scheduled to release, and I don't want to hold those back either. But if you want to get back to basics and learn how I see my world of, of personal finance, uh, make sure to listen to each one of these on a weekly basis that's labeled back to school. We'll try, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll uh, hit a bunch of basic topics like asset protection, estate planning. We'll probably talk a little bit about life insurance again. We will also talk about, um, you know, some of the portfolio theories, the way people approach things like that. Some of these are going to be me alone. Some of them are going to be with guests uh, such as Doug on this show. But anyway, this uh, this show in particular is uh, really important for everybody because, again, ultimately, uh, you, you know, you've got to protect the assets that you have. But make sure to tune in because Doug Ladmall knows everything about asset protection. And no matter where you are in your life, this is going to apply to you. What do the Rothschilds, the Romneys, and the billionaire hedge fund managers know that you don't about growing and protecting wealth? As you might imagine, the wealthy have a few tricks up their sleeves. One strategy allows you to grow wealth tax-free at a compounding rate with no volatility. It protects your money from creditors and lawsuits, and it lets you invest the same money in two different places at the same time. How about that for amplifying wealth? To learn more, go to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder the stuff is so profitable and recession-resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, 
these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest on Wealth Formula Podcast is Doug Lodmel. Doug has been on the show many times. He is my uh, uh, good friend, and he's also my asset protection attorney. Uh, he is, uh, his firm is called Lodmel and Lodmel. Doug, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Buck. How you doing? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Yeah. It's funny, uh, we're, you're uh, talking, you and me offline here about stem cells and yeah. <laughs> uh, going to Panama and stuff. And, uh, as young as we can for as long as we can. I know. <laughs> I know. Exactly. Yeah. Um, that's to me right now, like that's, uh, you know, that's where the, the conversation gets really interesting for me, but that's uh, not, that's the topic of my other podcast. If you're listening these days, yeah. uh, uh, Sapio, um, are you listening? You're not listening. Are you? No, no I, you mean your other podcast? <laughs> yeah. No, I need to. I want to, I want to, I didn't yeah. know. I didn't even know it was there. So yeah. yeah. It's Sapio with Buck Joffrey, and these are okay. the kind of topics we're talking about. In fact, I want to do one on stem cells as well, but it's a longevity yeah. podcast. It's pretty cool. Anyway, oh, wow. let's talk about something that I think um, you know I think is is important uh, while you're getting older. Uh, that's asset protection. That's what you're. Yeah. You know, that's what you do. And like, let's. I wanted to do sort of back to the basics on this because okay. I think sometimes we get you know, more and more complicated. And, uh, you know, we have a lot of new people and it's always good for a review. Um, yeah. The two things that I think that people think of the least or take care of the least when they're young and starting to accumulate wealth are asset protection and estate planning. Yeah. Right? And so, and broad, uh, on a broadly speaking, how would you define um, asset protection? So asset protection, it's, it's really a simple concept. How do you make your assets unavailable to a creditor or anyone else that mm -hmm. you would not want to get your assets? It's just, how do you make them unavailable? So, yeah. I mean, the very, the very simplest form of asset protection is don't have any assets. Be poor. Right. Like, just be broke, right? Yeah, I've done that one for. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, I think we all did that one, right? Um, you know, come out of come out of college with a whole bunch of debt and no assets, and you are protected. You're you're rock solid. There's no, you know, even if you if you did something horrible with tons of liability, nobody is going to care. They're not going to bother you because you've got nothing. Um, but of course, none of us want to stay there, right? That that's not the goal, right? We want to do the opposite. We want to build assets. We want to build wealth. And at some point, what I found is there's just kind of a tipping point. Mm -hmm. and, and all of a sudden you look up and you're like, wow, I've been working really hard for a lot of years. And geez, I have something I could lose. Like there's something there. Yeah. Um, and all of a sudden it comes with a, a, I think a hit of joy. Like, wow, I've, I've kind of made it. Like I got something and followed quickly thereafter by a hit of fear. Like what yeah. happens? Geez. Oh shit. What, what happens if. I lose this. Like, am I safe? Um, and and so asset protection in the way that we think of it at, from a legal standpoint is 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 let's address that. Let's address that fear. So it's setting up legal tools and structures that make your assets either difficult or nearly impossible for a creditor to reach. So it mimics you having no assets and yet you still have the beneficial use and control and enjoyment of those assets. So you do have the assets. They're just in a place where a creditor couldn't reach them. 
I should point out that I think you're actually giving the best case scenario, which is I'm accumulating assets and all of a sudden I'm waking up out of nowhere thinking. Yeah, yeah you're right. <laughs> I, yeah, I need protection. Most of the time it's like, oh man, somebody is suing me for some reason. What do I do now? <laughs> yeah, no, you're so right. Yeah, that's the best case was you wake up on your own. The, 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 the more likely case is you wake up because you get a lawsuit, you know, you get an attack. Um, yeah. And then they're calling with their hair on fire going, oh my God, I didn't even think about it. I've just been making assets. I never even thought to stop and address the protecting of them. Yeah. So the question is, okay, so you start accumulating assets and, um, you know, I think the first layer of protection, uh, what, what, what do you think? I mean, the, you talk about this. I think it's a very good point. Well, the first layer of protection maybe is just insurance, right? Yeah. So, so I mean, kid out of school, you buy the minimum insurance and on your car and you just go off, right? Um, at some point you realize, wow, I probably shouldn't have the minimum insurance. Um, and so you buy more and then somebody says to you, hey, you should probably buy an umbrella policy. Um, and the answer to that is you should. I mean, if you have assets, you should absolutely, because one of the greatest risks we all face, it's, it's. I have to tell you, it is the most common call I get is a car accident. That is, that is by far the reason that people call me the most. And I have been shocked at the amount of liability that a car accident can create. I mean, yeah. tens of millions of dollars. Yeah. If you, I mean, if you, if somebody dies, it's, it's, it's bad, but it's, it's kind of limited, but if somebody gets, gets uh, permanently injured, loses their legs, becomes, uh, you know, uh, paralyzed in some form, it's kind of unlimited liability. And so at that point, you know, not having the minimum insurance will be a really good thing and having umbrella policy. So, so yeah, if you're kind of at the stage where you haven't looked at your insurance, I highly recommend that you, you, you look at it. And um, I highly recommend an umbrella policy because they're not expensive. They really aren't. They're three or four thousand for for five or ten million dollars, um, and it's an excess coverage policy. So right. umbrella doesn't include any other insurance. Like you're not expanding your coverage. You're just expanding your limits mm -hmm. on your car and your 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 home and other already existing insurance. Right. But having those higher limits if you have a real accident is is critical. Yeah. Okay. And then, so once you're, you've got plenty of insurance, then you start looking at potentially LLCs, entities, limited partnerships. So what's the first layer of that? Like, and, and at what point should we think, start thinking about that from an asset protection standpoint? Right. So, so, um, once we have insurance, now we look at the assets themselves. So if someone comes to me and says, Hey, I'm, I just don't, I'm, I'm really into the stock market. That's my whole gig. I, and so I have my home and then I have a, a brokerage account. Um, then we focus on, okay, how do we protect the brokerage account? We are going to use some kind of holding company, like a limited liability company or a limited partnership. Uh, on the other hand, if somebody says, Hey, I'm really into real estate, which is pretty smart because there's all the tax benefits of being into real estate. Mm. Now we're talking about LLCs at that level of holding the real estate. So yeah. from a conceptual standpoint, if you own real estate, investment real estate, it should be in an LLC. And there's really no bottom line for that. I mean, the first piece of investment real estate you buy should be in an LLC. You should, you should start right from the beginning. One of the questions people ask all the time is, do I need an LLC for every asset? Nice. Yeah. My answer is usually, well, you know, do you, how, how much do you like those assets, right? Yeah. Like, 
Well, so the way that I look at it is you need an LLC for every basket of assets that you're willing to kind of put in the same risk basket. So if you're buying uh, little houses in Chicago at $60,000 a piece or in Detroit, you know, you probably don't need an LLC for each house with $60,000 of equity. Um, You could probably you probably bunch five or six houses together. On the other hand, if you're buying million dollar homes in California for rentals, yeah, they probably need their own LLC, each one. Um, and what, you know, what does an LLC do for you? So an LLC is 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 going to handle two different types of liability: inside liability and outside liability. Inside liability is liability associated with the inside of the LLC. In other words, what is held inside the LLC. So let's say you have a multifamily, you have a fourplex inside an LLC. And you have a problem, you know, fire or slip and fall or somebody gets shot on the property or whatever. The LLC is designed to insulate and hold that liability inside the LLC. So it kind of keeps it in there. Um, And that's good. And that's why we break up LLCs. So if you have $3 million properties in a single LLC and one of them has a problem, all three are at risk because they're all inside the LLC. Mm-hmm. So that's where we break up into multiple LLCs when we have enough risk in one that we're, okay, that's, we filled it up enough. Let's move to the next one. The other thing an LLC does is protect from outside liability. Outside liability is liability that has nothing to do with what is being held in the LLC. It has to do with what the owner of the LLC did outside. So that would be a car accident or a lawsuit from a partnership dispute or a malpractice claim from your profession or whatever. And now they get a judgment against you, the owner. And then they're looking at your assets and they see that you're holding this, this real estate in an LLC. And so that liability is coming in from the outside, trying to get to the asset. And an LLC, again, properly set up and, and done right, should protect from them getting in directly. Yeah, that inter- that external and internal attack thing is really important because like if you have physical real estate, you're protecting, you know, you've got um you've got liability from the actual properties themselves that right. stays within the LLC. Um, but then you have the protection of outside creditors getting to your physical assets because you're those are in inside of the uh, LLC. But also in our group, as you know, a number of people have significant investments in um, real estate syndications and other passive investments. And in that case, if they're in the LLC, they don't, they don't necessarily, you don't have to worry about the liability of those because you're in a limited liability uh, investment. However, what you're doing in that situation then is just protecting them from outside right. predators, right? Right. Yeah. You're so, so syndications are, I think, unless you're really committed to real estate, like that is yeah. your thing and you're going to be into it. I, I find that my clients who do syndications are, are much better off. It's, it's zero maintenance. They get all the benefits of the depreciation. They don't have to go and do all the work themselves, especially those clients that have a, a day job or a day career. Um, that seems to be a much better way for them to go. Um, the, the, the other benefit is that they're already wrapped up inside. They are just a, a member or a limited partner of a bigger syndication. So they've already insulated. So they don't have any, they don't have any worry. Now they just want to protect that interest from an outside liability. Yeah. And so those interests can go directly in the holding company. So that's where, so if you think of the holding company kind of in the middle of the page, the holding company can hold financial assets like stocks and bonds and cryptocurrency and and any kind of any kind of already securitized item. It can also hold interest in your syndications, 
So syndication interest, LLC interest, limited partnership interest. And then it can also hold interest in your wholly owned LLCs. So let's say you own some multifamily and you have an LLC, that LLC would be in the holding company. Um, and so the holding company is really designed to consolidate those assets, but we want to only really put safe assets directly in the holding company, meaning they've already been either wrapped in an LLC of our own or we're, we're buying into someone else's LLC or limited partnership through a syndication. You talk about the uh, LLC that protects your $1 million house in California. First, yeah. I don't know where you're getting a house for a million dollars in California. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> Temecula. <laughs> you might get a garage or something. Um, yeah. Two car garage or something. But, yeah. but anyway, the, uh, but, but you bring up a point, though, about the L, L, not LLCs are created equally, right? Because if you're in California, you have a California LLC. Talk a little bit about the limitations of some of the states and LLCs because they're not all created equally. Yeah, they're not all created equally. So, so the protection offered in L, in, in, through an LLC is what's called charging order protection. So what a charging order protection statute says is that if you as the member of an LLC have a judgment out here, your judgment creditor is limited to getting a charge against your interest in the LLC. And so if if the state says that the exclusive remedy for a creditor of a member of an LLC is the charging order, that's good. We, we don't want any other remedy. Other states say, well, the primary remedy is a charging order or any other such remedy as the judge may in their discretion determine, i.e. California says that. And so when you have a California LLC, um, charging order is still the primary. That's the one they're supposed to point to. But the reality is the judge has discretion. But I'm going to make another point. The reality is the judge always has the discretion. So even if you go to a state like Wyoming or Nevada, where charging order is the exclusive remedy, it does not mean a judge cannot say, well, it's the exclusive remedy for an LLC. But in this case, we're deeming the LLC as an alter ego of the client. And therefore, we're just going to disregard that the LLC even exists. So therefore, charging order doesn't apply. So I just want to make sure that everybody understands the discretion of a court is kind of unlimited in the United States. So there's always, always a risk. Even if you're using one of the good jurisdictions, there's always a risk that a judge can just decide you're the bad guy. I want to reach a result. I want to get to your money because I don't like what you did. And I'm sympathizing with the plaintiff and, and undercut and slice through any, any structure that's basically domestically based. So, um, at what point do you take it sort of to the next level? Like with the next level being holding companies, potentially offshore, uh, you know, offshore trust, that kind of things. Like what, you know, you're, we've talked a, a lot about like the different ways you can protect, but like at some point, you know, crazy people like me start looking at various uh, uh, trusts to see what else that they can do to protect themselves. Right. And um, when is what do they do for you and who's a good candidate? So, so the next level to this is what's called an asset protection trust. Um, asset protection trusts are, are, are kind of amazing animals. Um, first of all, trusts are amazing animals. So if, if you don't really understand what a trust is, a trust is effectively a private agreement. So um, I've had clients say, um, who owns the trust? There's actually no owner to a trust because a trust is an agreement. So if you and I say um, are, are hanging out in, in Santa Barbara 
and you're going to take the kids to the beach and Aslan's going to tag along. And I say, Hey, Buck, um, you know, here's a hundred bucks. Um, please, you know, buy Aslan ice cream and lunch and whatever. Um, but, but don't let them have any, any soda. We don't do soda. Um, that's a, that's a trust we, we have agreed. So I'm the settler of the trust, meaning I created it. You're the trustee because I gave you the hundred bucks. Aslan is the beneficiary because the money is for him. And I've also put a spendthrift provision around it. I've said, Hey, no soda because I don't, I don't want soda. So Mm -hmm. that's really a trust and trust can be oral. They don't even have to be written. So, so it's trusts are created every day, all the time by anybody, whoever says, Hey, do this for me. You know, here's some money, do this for me. Yeah. So trusts are amazing because they're incredibly flexible. You can do pretty much anything that's not illegal in a trust. So you could make up some crazy kind of situation, say, Hey, um, you know, whatever this, that, the other thing, as long as it's not illegal, it's allowable. Now, when we come to asset protection trust, we would rather not be doing an oral trust because no, we can't prove it exists. So we want to write it down. And then we'd like to be under a statutory regime that actually says, hey, we allow for these certain things to be done. Well, that first statutory regime that ever allowed for a, a particular type of trust that was really designed to protect the assets was designed in the Cook Islands way back in the 80s, 1984 with what was called the Cook Island Trust Act. And what they did is they said, hey, it's okay for you to create a trust for yourself, make yourself the beneficiary, put spendthrift provisions in it, which eliminate your creditor's access to the money. Um, and, and, And then by the way, if anyone wants to get into this trust, they have to come down here to the Cook Islands. They have to prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt. They can't amend their claim once they start. They can't get a free attorney because we don't allow contingency fees. In other words, they put this mountain of, of hurdles in front of anyone that would try to go down there and get these assets. That was revolutionary. It was a revolutionary concept. In fact, so revolutionary, a whole bunch of attorneys in the United States were like, that's never going to work. The U.S. is never going to go for that. They're going to say as a matter of public policy, you know, these are these are dis- disallowed. Um, but they were used for many years and they started to work. Some high profile cases came along and it worked. They really worked. Well, 1998 comes along and Alaska actually says, geez, why are we sending the business down to the Cook Islands? Why don't we try to get some of this business? They passed a statute modeled after the Cook Island statute, at least to the degree that they could. And they invented the domestic asset protection trust industry. Since 1998, we have 20 states in the United States that have passed some type of statute which allows for this type of trust. So what's the difference between a foreign asset protection trust and a domestic asset protection trust? Domestic ones don't work. (laughs) Yeah, you skip to the end. That's it. Domestic ones are still domestic. And because of that, they're still subject to the same judge who's sitting there going, yeah, I know it says that in the Alaska statute, but guess what? We're going to apply Montana law here. And Alaska doesn't know. And and Alaska can't really resist that because Alaska is part of the union. They have to respect, they have to domesticate the judgments. So if we look at the case law of the domestic trusts, it's kind of failure after failure after failure. So me personally, I'm not a big fan of a domestic trust. However, the foreign trust got some compliance hurdles. It's got some costs and control issues. A lot of people um, find out that they're a lot harder to maintain than 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 advertised sometimes. Um, and so, you know, uh, they're great when you're actually defending. 
and protecting. But when you're just doing it kind of prospectively and, and you know, hope you never need it, they're pretty expensive and they're pretty they're pretty high compliance with the IRS. A little clunky too. Um, a little, pretty clunky, yeah. yeah. Let me ask you this though, like real quick, going back to the example of the California real estate. Yeah. If you if you had the ultimate ultimately the real estate was owned by an offshore trust. Yeah. Like in that situation, the judge couldn't still just point at you because ultimately it's the trust that owns the real estate, right? But first of all, that's is that a correct assumption? No, it's not. So 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 it let's just say we have an LLC that owns the real estate, holding company that owns the LLC offshore trust that owns the holding company. Yes. So now we have three layers. So bad judgment comes down and now we're in a collection type of proceeding. And so they're going to find all this out because they're going to depose you. They're going to find out you, you're going to have to tell the truth. You're going to say, okay, well, you know, what assets do you have? Are you the beneficiary or the creator of any trust? And a good attorney is going to, going to be able to sniff out your, basically your entire structure. At that point, they, they run into the judge and they say, okay, judge, we've figured it out. There's this offshore trust created by the, the the debtor that holds this holding company off in Wyoming or Arizona or wherever, which holds this LLC in California, which holds this million dollar property. We want you to dismantle this whole thing and get to the million dollar property. And at that point, um, we're basically now at, at the discretion of that judge. So my personal experience is that sometimes that is completely respected and the judge says, hey, sorry, I'm going to respect that structure. You can't get to it. Other times a judge might not respect that structure. So anytime you're dealing with physical real estate, I tell clients right from the beginning, hey, look, we're going to set it up this way. And if we're talking about the average liability, we're probably never going to need to do anything. But if we're talking about a catastrophic nuclear event, you know, somebody dies, somebody very sympathetic dies on one of your properties and there's a $10 million judgment and you're not the sympathetic party they are, I'm going to tell you that leaving your real estate just sitting there, um, even if it's in an offshore trust, eventually is not 100% safe. So you always have to be ready and willing to convert that equity into actual physical cash, which yeah. means either strip the equity or sell the property. Yeah. So in, in and obviously that that runs into the um, um, the transfer thing. What what is that called? The fraudulent transfer. Fraudulent transfer issues. But well, at that point, the money's already in Cook Island's jurisdiction anyway. So what are you going to do about it? Right? Well, right. And, and so, and the fraudulent transfer issues are, are important to understand. A, tr a fraudulent transfer requires a legal transfer. So mm -hmm. when you transfer the property into the LLC, that's a legal transfer. When you transfer the LLC interest into the holding company, that's a legal transfer. When you transfer the holding company interest into the trust, that's a legal transfer. Five years later, let's say, we've done all these legal transfers and set up this structure. Five years later, the trust is now holding this interest in this property through the holding company and the LLC. And something, some risk comes along and we decide we no longer want to be invested in California real estate. The, the trust says, hey, I'd like to go ahead and take a distribution. The real estate is sold. The money is moved to the holding company and then off to the trust. No legal transfers there. Those are just movements of money. The trust already owned it. So yeah. from a fraudulent transfer standpoint, the more important time frame is when we set up the plan, not when we actually start moving. Wow. Money. Okay. That's, that's important. Okay. So, yeah. uh, that brings us to, uh, your, your, your solution to the issue of the clunky trust. Yeah. <laughs> which 
you know, which allows you to, you know, kind of keep costs down, be a little bit more flexible, and at the same time, you know, be able to flip a switch. Right. Um, tell us a little bit about that. So, so um, you know, I was in law school. I, I got the opportunity to go and do a tax master's degree at NYU, which is, which is you know, just more tax. I mean, all tax, all day, every day. Um, the fortunate thing about that is that the the challenges with some of the, the clunkiness of the offshore trust are because of its tax classification as a foreign trust. So, so I was actually asking the question, how do we get the protection of the offshore without triggering the tax issues? And I realized you can actually bifurcate the problem. You can have the trust registered offshore and from an offshore perspective, that offshore entity sees it as a foreign trust. But the U.S. has their own regime as to determine what is a foreign trust. And they define it in the IRS code 7701A30E, and they created a two-part test. And they say, hey, as long as the primary supervision of the trust is in the United States, and as long as the primary jurisdiction for uh, administering the trust is in the United States, we consider this a domestic trust. So what I did is I created a trust that that actually is registered offshore and seen as by as foreign by the offshore jurisdiction. But then we meet that two part test. We actually bridge it back and meet the two part test so that it's considered domestic from an IRS perspective. And so because of that bridging mechanism, I actually named it the bridge trust because I'm bridging. And so what it really is, is it's a hybrid between the foreign and the domestic. So from a compliance standpoint, it's under the domestic regime. We don't have to file the 3520. We don't have to get a separate tax ID number. Um, we just choose a jurisdiction in the United States to have primary supervision. And then we choose a trustee that have primary control. Well, for me, the best trustee is the client themselves. They want control anyway. They always want control. We always want control of our own assets. So by making the client the trustee, we meet that domestic U.S. person in control and by choosing a U.S. jurisdiction, we meet the jurisdiction test. And so now we have a very simple trust to maintain. Doesn't have all of those expenses. It's much less expensive to maintain. Um, no IRS compliance. But if we have a problem, we can actually just cross back over the bridge, remove the, the client as the trustee, and drop the U.S. jurisdiction. And now we're just, just back to being nothing but a foreign trust. So that is, uh, you know, and, and that's less expensive. It's easier to use. I use that. Um, yeah. it, it's really uh, helpful. And what, what do you call that? I call it the bridge trust because we're bridge. bridging those jurisdictions. Yeah. So they're, it's, it's, it's a bridge between the foreign and the domestic. Um, I think the last point to make on this, I think is an important one too, is that, you know, part of, part of asset protection what I've realized, and unfortunately, you know, it's, I've realized a lot about the legal system as I've, I've kind of <laughs> you had to deal with it. <laughs> had to deal with it. And a lot of it is, is not as, as, you know, when you first uh, start making money, you think about somebody suing you and going to court and winning and all that. A lot of times, most of the time, it never gets there. And right. most of the time it's about settling. And, um, Really, I think one of the, the things that you can do with these things is just make yourself look like a big pain in the ass to somebody who's trying to sue you, right? Because a lot of times, you know, those attorneys are paid on uh, basically whatever they can get money and they're going to get a portion of that money 
Correct. They look yeah. at you and say, it's going to take me so much time and money to do this case, to try to get anything. And this guy's got structure after structure, and maybe I'll be able to dismantle him, but maybe not, and probably not. And by the time I do, I mean, I probably would have been better taking another job. Right. I mean, isn't that a big part of this strategy at the end of the day? It, it is the biggest part. It is the most important part. Yes, it, it, because we don't we don't really want to go to trial and get a judgment and resist the judgment and trigger the trust and, and liquidate assets and open Swiss accounts. I mean, that's not our goal. Our goal is for them to never go to trial. And, and that's also why we started this conversation with insurance. It's why insurance is such a great piece of this. So the best combination is to have a good insurance policy with a, with a good umbrella policy and then have asset protection so that when the other side is has the $10 million claim and you have $5 million of umbrella, they're trying to decide, hey, are we gonna, are we gonna go for more than that? And then they're gonna want financial disclosure from you. And if you can show them a financial disclosure with all these layers built in so that it's very clear that, oh my God, even if we are able to get a judgment in excess of the, of the insurance, collecting against this guy is gonna be impossible. Yeah. So let's just take the insurance. So they work really well together, which is why I'm a proponent of getting the insurance. Now, not everything is covered by insurance. And in that case, we just are relying on the asset protection and all the more reason why you want your asset protection to be very, very strong. And not only to be strong, but to look strong. And, and part of that is making sure that it, it has all the elements that the other side looks at and says, okay, yeah, too difficult. Let's, let's take a pass or let's settle. Um, and that's what it's really all about. This is a, yeah, I think this is a really important and I think a nice succinct um, sort of review of this topic. Doug, um, where, okay, so so if people want to get in touch with you, how do they do that? And by the way, I should point out on wealthformula.com, I believe there is still, um, you know, a, a recorded webinar that you did yeah. for asset protection, which if people want to go back and get some more information and some more layers on this might be yeah. useful to do. And you can contact Doug through that, but um, how else could they reach out? Yeah. So, I mean, if you just want kind of more information, you want to see what's going on, you can go to the website, which is just www.lodmel, my last name.com. Um, if you just want to reach me directly, you can just email me, just my name, Doug at lodmel.com and say, Hey, I heard you on Buck. You know, I'd love to talk. Um, I, I, if, if it, if it's coming from you, Buck, we don't charge anything for that initial com conversation and I can help them understand yeah. what's going on. Um, then of course they can call, you know, just anytime they can just call and make an appointment. Um, our phone number is 602-230-2014. We're in Scottsdale, Arizona. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're here all the time. <laughs> Fantastic. All right, Doug. Well, uh, hopefully we'll see each other soon, maybe in Panama. Who knows? Yeah, um, yeah, that's the plan, up. right? Yeah. <laughs> but you, you, you've got a birthday, so maybe we'll make it a birthday trip. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, well, listen, that's uh, it's great having you as always, and we will uh, touch base soon, man. Uh, thanks, thanks again for being a well-formed podcast. All right, my pleasure. Be right back. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Hope you enjoyed it. And uh, that is uh, the first uh, in a series of shows that we're going to have uh, in the Back to School series. And the Back to School series, as I mentioned before, this is intended for us to hit some of the fundamentals of personal finance 
And I uh, hope you enjoyed it. Let me know if you have any questions or any particular types of subjects that you want me to address. And if it seems appropriate, I will do so. Shoot me an email at buck at wealthformula.com. That's it for me this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. This is Buck Jaffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Sapio with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.